Hello, and welcome to Episode 6 of Season 10. I have two Australian industry professionals generously sharing some incredible insight into their area of expertise, mortgages and finance and town planning and approvals. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together, we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. This is another chunky episode because seriously, there was too much goodness to share from both my guests. So my first guest on this episode is Caroline Jean-Baptiste from Mortgage Choice in Fortitude Valley, which is in Brisbane. And my second guest is Peter Charles from Brisbane Town Planning. So yep, money, mortgages and council rules. That's what we're diving into in this episode. And whilst these women are both from Brisbane-based businesses, the advice that they have to share will be applicable to you wherever you are. So uh, if you're not from Brisbane, don't tune out. I think you'll particularly benefit from their insights into the mistakes and dramas they see homeowners experience and the incredible advice that they have to share. And so you can really know how to avoid those same mistakes on your own renovation or building journey and have a much better experience. So let me tell you first about Caroline. Caroline Jean-Baptiste is, uh, she owns the award-winning mortgage broking business, Mortgage Choice, and she's located in Brisbane, as I said. Now, Caroline is on a mission to get people talking about money. She believes that money is everyone's mate, that it's there to help us through life and to live comfortably. And she wants to remove the negative emotions around money, such as shame, denial, and blame, so that she can show people how they can take control of their spending and build a solid future for themselves and their families. Caroline knows that the stress around money can affect relationships, and she is here to empower people to take back control, take responsibility, and start good conversations around a historically taboo subject. She calls us all to start talking about money tackling debt small steps at a time and building financial resilience through mindful spending, not denying ourselves a good life. Caroline is a specialist in finance with more than 12 years working as a mortgage broker in her own business, so she knows her stuff. Her passion is working with her clients to achieve the life they want through home ownership and wealth creation. And she is dedicated to helping first home buyers get into their home, and existing homeowners to renovate and upgrade. And as I said, she owns award-winning mortgage broking business, Mortgage Choice, based in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane, and she and her team serve all of Brisbane. Getting finance to fund your renovation or new build project can be super stressful and full of challenges. And yet, making it happen is often key to your project happening at all or not at all. Now, I collected some fantastic questions from the UA community to ask Caroline, and I also gathered some of my own, and uh, Caroline delivers. This is a fantastic interview, so let's dive into it now. Now, Caroline, it's awesome to have you joining me today. I'm really excited to be speaking with you because uh, the topic of finance and getting, obviously, lending for property renovation and building is a big one, and it's a really nerve-wracking one for a lot of homeowners who might be tackling this for the first time. They perhaps have bought their first house and they're renovating it, or perhaps they're even just buying a land and house uh, scenario and have never really borrowed money before. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, yourself? How did you get into this world of um, being a mortgage broker, dealing with home lending and having your own business? Well, I uh, spent a lot of time traveling overseas, but the thing that I really wanted to do when I got home was buy a house. And I subscribed to Australian Property Investor and had it sent to me overseas. And I would always fantasize about building this massive property portfolio um, but when I got back, I was I actually went to apply for a home loan um, in Victoria to my local bank manager, and they said no. And I just felt ashamed and embarrassed, thinking how ignorant I was about the whole process. So I went back overseas and put the idea off for maybe three years. And then when I got back to Australia again to establish myself, I was looking for a business to buy and discovered mortgage brokers and and thought if I'd known this known about mortgage brokers three years earlier, I would have already been well and truly on my way to building my portfolio. So I didn't know anything when I got the, got into the industry and I just wanted to be able to learn it all and teach myself more about everything property and everything loans. So 
I really love the numbers side of it and I love seeing people achieve their dreams and, you know, finance and buying a property and renovating can be such an emotional roller coaster. And knowing that I've been there myself and seeing people do it every single day, I love to be able to help people achieve their goals. It's really, really satisfying. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think that, you know, seeing the, that this is a vehicle to people empowering themselves and, and building better lifestyles overall, which is such a big part of your mission in the way that you work, I think is fantastic. And it is, you know, I said in the intro that, um, you know, something you say about the money always being a difficult conversation and a really taboo topic. And I think that when people do educate themselves around this area, it just makes things so much simpler and, um, and easier to deal with overall. So I think, you know, in any scenario when you're better informed, you can certainly navigate things a lot more confidently. So I, I got a lot of questions when I asked the UA community uh, for, you know, mentioned that I was going to be speaking to you and ask for questions. A lot of people said, look, how do I even know that the mortgage broker I'm dealing with is any good? How do I, you know, how do I assess, do they have enough relationships with different banks? Am I getting the best deal? Um, you know, there's been stuff that's come out of the Royal Commission um, that obviously had recently drew its, its uh, close about uh, the recurring commissions that mortgage brokers can make from different uh, lending facilities. So what do you advise in terms of what people should look for, their criteria for choosing a mortgage broker and, um, and understanding that process generally? Primarily, they would need to be um, members of some sort of association. So there's two associations in mortgage broking and one is the MFAA, the Mortgage Finance Association of Australia, or the FBAA, which is the Finance Brokers Association of Australia. And these are mem- membership bodies that we can uh, we, we need to actually have a certain level of education to be part of and also being back up, backed up by a strong brand and a strong internet presence. So just a little side story. I went and I sold a property last year and then there was and there was two different contracts on this property and it was an awful experience. And trying to find the person who was arranging the finance was really, really difficult in both situations. I couldn't Google them. They had no um, Facebook presence, no internet presence, and both of them fell over. And I think that if somebody isn't willing to actually put themselves forward and say, I'm a business, I am here for everybody to find me and there's no hiding, I think that's also a really important part of it. Now, experience and where they can go for mentorship also comes into it so that if they're not sure of what to do in that situation, you've possibly got to be, you've got to have a little bit more confidence to know that they know where to go to get the right answer. In our industry, things are changing all the time. Policy changes all the time. A lot of people don't even know how structuring works. And that's really important when you're looking to build a portfolio or renovate your home or build your dream home, the way that your loans are structured can hinder or it can really work in your favour. So having experience or being backed up by experience is something really important when you're shopping for a broker. And in terms of that relationship with banks, you know, do brokers, I suppose, set themselves up to just have relationships with a certain number of banks or how, how do you sort of position yourself in terms of the banks that you can give your clients access to and how you're assessing, you know, who you're recommending? How, you know, I know that there's, a, there's generally a lot of concern around the transparency, I suppose, in that, in, in who the banks are that people, brokers might have put on their list and, and uh, people feeling that they might be missing out on something just because the broker doesn't have a relationship with that bank. So, how, how, do, how do you kind of work with your clients in that regard? So brokers work through aggregators. So the aggregator, um, my aggregator is Mortgage Choice and there's other reputable aggregators in the industry like Connective, AFG, Aussie and uh, aggregators who negotiate the relationship with the lender. Now, they want to make sure that before they sign off on allowing us to build a relationship with that lender, that they're a reputable lender whose servicing timeframes are um, acceptable, whose policies are in line with um, the aggregators and who has the technology to be able to deliver the product, who has a good reputation and is compliant in the industry and all that sort of stuff. We have over 20 lenders on our panel 
and these lenders have been signed off by Mortgage Choice. AFG has, uh, um, I think, just a slightly higher number, but the relationship with uh, the bank and the broker is generally managed through uh, the aggregator. So the the BDMs, the um, bank representatives, they're the ones who come and see us and tell us tell us all about their policy and products. And we've also got a database of policy that we can go to as well. So it's required by Mortgage Choice, and I believe the MFAA and the FBAA, to be transparent in our commissions. So when the loan documents come out, our commissions are actually listed in the loan documents, but also the preliminary assessment and proposal. So the document before you submit the loan, that discloses all of our commissions. So um, I'm actually quite surprised that this sort of thing came up in the Royal Commission, because this has been in place for um, quite a long time that it's um, it's transparent in what we're paid. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? And I think that um, I what I see happen for people, you know, I know that with mine and my husband's projects, we've often found that it's been better to go to a broker than to the, directly to the bank, because you can have some really frank conversations about what your financial positioning is, how you need to frame your argument to a lender in order to, you know, convince them that you're a viable, I suppose, um, you know, good borrower, risk. yeah, good risk. <laughs> And, and I've always found it really handy because it's, it is that structuring thing, understanding exactly how that is going to be packaged up because it is such a long-term commitment. Um, it's been really handy for us to be able to speak to a broker rather than directly to the bank. Now, in terms of uh, if we can get onto home lending itself, because I also receive loads of questions about that. So now, um, of course, it's tightened up a lot over the past few years. There's been a lot of conversation I've seen, um, a lot of investors really struggling with getting borrowing for um, for finance, and then a lot of people who are just trying to renovate or build new really struggling with dealing with the lending criteria that um, that their lenders are, are, are requiring of them. So what are, the, what are the, some of the key things with the changes that have been made and with the way that things are currently that, that homeowners need to be aware of if they're looking to borrow for a renovation or to build a new home? It's been really tough for a lot of people who maybe started their journey a couple of years ago and set their targets at their dream home. And in the last couple of years, lending has tightened so much that in some instances, people are finding they can borrow maybe $300,000 less than what their original conversation was. So what's really important is to keep having that conversation throughout your journey so that let's say, for example, you um, buy, a pl- buy a piece of land with the intention to build on it later. A lot of things can happen in the property market, in lending and with with banks policy and things like that to really impact your end goal. So I had a, I had a client a few years ago who'd bought a block of land and we borrowed 95%. In the two years that they took to build on this block of land, what had happened was part of an estate and the developer was having trouble selling the blocks of land. So they sold 20 blocks to a builder at a heavily discounted price. Now, the impact that had on the end value of the land was that it came down by about $40,000, which was more than 10% of the value of the land. So when we went to build on it, the end value was down by $40,000. So these people, because we were so highly geared, these people had to come up with the cash themselves, which made it really, really difficult. So what should have happened is when they were ready to start building, they should have started the conversation with me before they'd signed any build contract so we could get a new land value, a new construction value, and then they would have really understood exactly how much they could, have, uh, how much they could spend on it and whether it was just better to sell the block of land. So there's a lot of out-of-pocket expenses speaking and time, speaking with the builder, coming up with um, a house plan, only to find out they were $40,000 short. So these are the sort of things that can happen in the market 
And then when it comes to borrowing, it's really important to, to keep that conversation open with your broker. And if let's say, for example, you've let it go for six months and you've been in conversation with your builder for six months or your, your, or your architect, make sure that you've reviewed your options, your borrowing options, before you sign that contract. Yeah, I think it's um, such a great piece of advice and I think that just keeping that th- that understanding of what changes are being made, is it going to impact you? Because, oh gosh, I can imagine how difficult that was to, to have signed the contract and then be figuring out how do I come up with this cash, otherwise everything's going to fall through or we have to make some dramatic changes. So that's, an inc- that's a really stressful way to start your project. So I think, um, I think that's great advice and I think too – that just that example of how quickly land values can change and you can't really rely on past knowledge. Um, you've got to always be working with current information. So now with renovating, so you're in an existing home that you probably have a mortgage on. How do you leverage the existing value of your home to borrow against it for the renovation? Do you have to demonstrate obviously extra capacity in your earning? Uh, do you have to just wait till the value of your existing property goes up that you've got enough, you know, equity in it to renovate? How do you help people through that process of looking at how they can leverage um, from their existing property into an extension and a renovation um, when they're financing? So we've got a lot of first home buyers who want to uh, buy a smaller place and renovate to make it worth much more. Um, they've managed to save up a bit of money so when they buy their first home, let's say, for example, it's 500000 and they're going to do a $300,000 renovation on it. Now, when they buy their home, they're not going to have $300,000 cash or $300,000 equity to be able to take out and fund a renovation. So this is how a construction loan works. Um, and it works the same with uh, vacant land and build. So the bank takes the initial value generally adds on the value of the renovations um, to end up with an end value and they lend on an end value. So let's say, for example, they've bought their house for 500000 They negotiate with a builder and they have a fixed price building contract in place for $300,000. Now, the bank will be asking for this fixed price building contract to get a guarantee that this is the work that will be completed at the end And they can definitely use that building quote to determine the end value. Now, they're going to ask for a fixed price building contract, plans, specifications and inclusions so that the valuer can look at it and determine end value. Now, the reason they've got got specifications and inclusions in there is because they need to know at what quality the renovation will be completed. So, if you're doing a low-end renovation at 150000 and still end up with a five-bedroom, two-bathroom property, doing the same renovation for a five-bed, two-bath property for a $300,000 renovation, it's going to have higher-end finishes to it. And this is how the valuer determines what the end value will be. Now, it's not always that the value of the renovation goes on to the existing value of the property, uh, but... More often than not, if you can demonstrate that you're adding that much value, and they would also use comparable sales in the area, that, they, that the bank will end up lending you money on the end value. Now, they will want to control the drawdowns and pay the builder directly, and you will need to sign off on the work that is being completed. So banks look for a progress payment schedule in line with the uh, – state governing body for builders. Uh, In Queensland, we've got um, uh, the QBCC, I think it's called, and they have a standard form and a standard progress payment schedule. Now, I've got one at the moment that the bank has gone back and asked for the payment schedule to be adjusted because they've got – it's a big build and they've got the payment schedule over 10 payments and the bank wants to see it consolidated so that the so that the the um, builder isn't just getting a wage because that's what it looks like. They want the builder to complete the work, be paid for it. Complete the work, be paid for it. 
Yeah, it's really interesting actually because we've had conversations on the podcast and uh, members of Manage Your Build, um, one of my online courses will know this as well. So Dwayne Pierce, who's a, a builder that uh, I collaborate with and that shares a lot of knowledge and expertise with the UA community, talks about how important it is that you get the payment schedule in your contract reviewed by the bank or whoever your lender is and that you get it in writing that they have agreed to that payment schedule and that they will commit to those payments the way that it's structured. And he does see that banks are trying to reduce the number of payment schedules, whereas for a builder who's trying to manage their cash flow, for them to have more regular payment uh, payments in the duration of their project actually works far better for them. And it's this weird kind of um, uh, I suppose sticking point where the homeowner gets caught in the middle and um, because ideally what builders are now seeking is payments every 14 to 21 days and so that they do know that they can um, always be regularly cash flowing their projects and um, and they still obviously have to demonstrate that they've completed certain work or that they've ordered certain materials, have to produce invoices and all those types of things. Um, but it's a, it is, it just goes to show, doesn't it, how important it is that you set up that communication and you understand before you have said yes to everything, is my bank actually going to pay the contract the way that it's structured? Because wowzers, you could get, I mean, if you if a builder's not getting paid their payment schedule, they, they have a right to walk away from the contract mid project. So you don't, you know, because you're in breach of contract then. So you don't want to be as a homeowner stuck in that position. And I think it's a really, um, really great piece of advice to understand that. And it's really good that you've been able to highlight that with a specific scenario. So now for people who are you who are buying land and then obviously dealing with the lag between, you know, working with a designer and getting uh, construction documentation done and, and a builder's quote to then build a new home or perhaps they're looking at building a project home and there's that time lag between securing the land and um, building the property. How do you generally recommend people structure um, particularly if they're, they're living in their current house, you know, um, and, and not necessarily renting their living in a property, how do you recommend they structure that process um, and and that that I suppose the time relationship of buying buying new land to then build on and then and then uh, funding the contract for the construction as well. It really depends on what your plans are with your existing property. Um, if you plan on renting that property out, uh, then they would use it in assessment, uh, use the rental income in the assessment. Um, but there's, it depends on what, you, what your situation is. As I said before, I would always recommend, if possible, to have a cash backup. Quite often you can borrow additional, uh, additional funds from in the home loan to cover any unexpected expenses. But if it really is borderline, then they're probably not going to let you do that. They want to see some sort of resilience in your financial situation so that they understand that you've got the capacity to meet repayments right up to um, the end of the construction. When you're building a property, your, your repayments won't be required in full until the property is completed. So the... You will need to be making repayments on land if the land has settled and the bank has paid it, but you can always make that interest only and quite often construction loans are interest only, which just eases up your cash flow while you're renting and you're making the repayments on um, on the land loan and then the construction. So as the loan draws down, your repayments go up incrementally according to the amount of the drawdown. So as soon as settlement hits, you're not going to be required to pay those full principal and interest repayments until the loan is fully drawn and you've moved in. Now, if you're planning to sell your property and the purchase of the land and build is subject to you having to sell the property, a bridging loan is an option for you there. So you can live in the property, put it on the market, take six months to a year to sell it and do the build at the same time under a bridging scenario, which means you will be borrowing the full amount on both properties um, or refinancing your existing debt on your existing home and borrowing the full amount for the build. And once you sell your existing home, then paying down the debt to whatever the end value agreed is. So you don't have to put all uh, the proceeds of the property fully into the bridging loan. So let's say, for example, you want to keep $50,000 once you sell this other property to finish whatever you want to finish. So 
you may have decided halfway through that you're actually thinking you will put that pool in after all and keeping $50,000 from the sale of the property is something that you need to have the conversation with your broker up front. So if you're thinking about any possible thing or you would like the flexibility to add extra things in later, have that conversation right up front with your brokers so that, so that they can adjust the figures accordingly and maybe keep that extra cash. If you decide to use it, it's there for you to use. If you decide, no, we're against that pool and we're, we don't want to actually borrow that money, it can go straight back into the loan and you can bring your, your repayments down accordingly. That's fantastic. And I think, again, it's that thing of, okay, what's what are we doing? Let's have an early conversation about it so we understand the best structure. We know what that's going to mean in terms of our obligations payment-wise moving forward and, uh, and that notion of how the loan needs to be structured overall. So it's just all of that message of communication early, you know, mapping out the possible scenarios is coming through loud and clear. And I think it's that... When I see homeowners, when they're thinking of building and renovating, they go immediately to let's choose a builder. And I, I talk to them about the fact that they need to work right back and think, okay, we've got to figure out what we're allowed to do, what we can afford, you know, and it's, and I can see that early conversation with the financial side of uh, whoever they're going to be working with is such a key to making sure that they're going to be able to fund the thing the whole way through and they're going to do it in the best way that's uh, going to suit them. So this is a fantastic conversation. I know the UA community will be loving this. So, you know, that leads really well into the, into the last question I had, which was about this idea of value the future end result of your property. I know that we did this with one of our projects. It was a really large scale renovation. We were able to get the work started based on equity that we had in the property, but then partway through we refinanced on the future value of the property. And um, and what was really interesting for us, and I actually had a, a mate at university who, whilst we were all, um, you know, basically being university students and doing what university students do, he managed to build a property portfolio. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he, he always said to me, never never send a valuer in blind. Always help a valuer come up with the value that you want. And so he, he uh, and, and so I actually um, researched some comparative values because I, as an architect, I could see what the property was going to be beyond the floor plans and I could see what we were drawing on in terms of inspiration around the area and so showed these other properties and other values to the valuer. How do you go through that process of valuing the future? And you mentioned the importance of the specifications, the standards of finishes, all of those types of things. The the valuation becomes so key to making this finance work. How how do you coach clients through that valuation process and and you know bringing in the future value of their end product as part of uh, being able to demonstrate to the bank that they're a good risk? The quality of the building contract and the list of uh, inclusions and specifications is going to make a huge difference. Now, one of the issues that we had with this particular building contract where there was a $1.4 million renovation, with one lender or one valuer, we got an end value of $1.8 million and the other lender, we got an end value of $2.125. That is a massive difference when it comes to borrowing and it can have a, a big impact. So the issue there, I think, was well, I know, was the quality of the building contract. The, there was no detail in it, so it was, it was very difficult. And in all honesty, I don't think the valuer could be bothered really going back and asking the questions and asking the questions because we had to go back three times for this builder to finally say, okay, fine, I'll put in more detail and more detail. So it was, there was a lot of allowances that went in there, an allowance for a kitchen, allowance for a bathroom cabinetry, but there just wasn't the detail as to exactly what quality they were going to be. So it just said allowance for bathroom cabinetry. Now, they could have just been uh, Laminex or, or Tupac or, you know, whatever whatever the, the quality was going to be, but it, they were actually intending on putting in a marble, uh, marble basin. And if the valuer could see that level of detail – that could have itself painted a good picture for them. Working with valuers can be very difficult. It can be very challenging because they've quite often got their own ideas and I've had a, a lot of clients who've gone in and, 
and um, reported back to me, oh, that went really well, that went really well. And the value ended up coming in much less than what they expected. And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a game of roulette. You just – sometimes you just get lucky and sometimes you get a valuer who's really, really hard work. So helping them with comparable sales is great because if they can picture what you picture, it, it could mean a difference in value between 1.8 and 2.1. So I think it's a really great idea to coach them, coach them through. If it's simply telling them what's great about the house – it may or may not help because they walk in and they see it. But if it's about describing your vision and showing them it, uh, uh, supporting that in a quality building contract, then you're more likely to get the value that you are seeking on completion. Yeah, and this is really exciting because I encourage all homeowners to make all of their selections before they sign a contract with a builder to not be having anything as a provisional sum or as a PC item, that everything is chosen, designed, selected, actually priced accurately as you want it to be and that's what goes into your contract. And what you're telling me is that that's really important for the valuer as well (laughs) because it means that the valuer will actually be looking at a building contract that reflects what you want to build and you'll be getting able to access finance based on a realistic understanding understanding of what you're creating at the end so this it's all coming full circle (laughs) (laughs) it would be incredibly helpful for everyone if that if that was the case it would be amazing oh caroline it's been such a joy to talk to you thank you so much you've shared so many great tips and uh really fantastic advice and i'm just very grateful for your generosity and your time in uh in giving people access to such a huge amount of knowledge and experience when it comes to borrowing for their renovation or new build thank you so much thanks amelia it's been a lot of fun cheers I really hope you enjoyed that. I thought Caroline had some really tangible, really great examples to share on things to be especially aware of when thinking about borrowing for your project and some of the traps that people have fallen into. I really hope that you heed her advice and you speak to someone about finance as one of the first steps in your project because when you know this information up front, it will entirely change the journey that you have and just really empower you to know what you can do, what you need to know and how you're going to create the project that you want to and have the type of renovation and build project that you want to. Now, I cannot wait to introduce my second guest for this interview. This is Peter Charles from Brisbane Town Planning. Now, Brisbane Town Planning promises to make designers look good. How? Well, they say it's simple. We actively work to get their jobs out of a town planning application, also known as a DA. This saves their clients time and money, which as you can imagine, earns some serious kudos, brownie points, bragging rights, and general good vibes with their clients. Now, it was this straight-talking approach uh, that put Brisbane Town Planning and its founder, Peter Charles, on my radar initially. That and the huge amount of free videos, audio, and written clips that they've produced to help industry and homeowners understand the nuances of town planning legislation, specifically in Brisbane, but it applies everywhere. This kind of stuff applies everywhere. The terminology just changes, the application just changes, but this stuff exists everywhere. And Brisbane Town Planning do an amazing job of keeping us across changes and challenges when helping get clients and their projects across the line. It's really rare to see a town planner seeking to lift the lid on the industry like Peter Peter does, and she certainly lives by her belief that knowledge is power in how she generously shares her industry experience and expertise. She does it all with a lot of humour and quirk as well. I know firsthand just how dry town planning legislation can be and how terminology rich it is as well, and it can be bamboozling for the uninitiated and super difficult to get a clear picture of what applies to your project and what doesn't. Peter has an awesome way of breaking through the bureaucracy and she is passionate about being transparent and honest and educating people about the inner workings of the town planning process so they don't get hoodwinked into going down a path that isn't right for them. Now, for those listening outside of Brisbane and Australia, Brisbane's actually the capital of Queensland. It's the main urban centre of Queensland. Brisbane Metro itself has a population of roughly two and a half million. It's Australia's third largest city after Sydney and Melbourne and its population has grown at a similar rate to Sydney's over the past few years and it's out 
outstripped Melbourne's population growth. The city CBD is actually located on a river that snakes its way through and then it extends out into established suburbs that are dominated by weatherboard elevated homes known as Queenslanders. And then you've got newer suburbs that have a mix of housing from the 1950s, 60s, 70s through to newer homes as well. I actually lived in Brisbane from 2001 to 2014 and it was a time when the city was booming. It was great to be an architect because so much building was occurring. And what initially struck me having grown up in Sydney with a huge range of different councils and council conditions was the enormity of Brisbane City Council's area of jurisdiction. Brisbane City Council is actually the largest local government in Australia. And I remember thinking, awesome, one council, one set of rules to remember. Simple, hey? So different from what I'd done in Sydney. But no, the town plan of Brisbane still responds to the differences and nuances of its range and variety of suburbs and building typologies. And it has a variety of codes to know and consider with any project. And it's been through a raft of changes. And uh, it continues to respond to the demands of a growing city and the protection of its natural and built assets. And I actually think it does a really good job of it compared to a lot of councils that I deal with. Peter has some great advice to share wherever you are located. So please don't tune out if you're not from Brisbane. This is going to be super helpful for you. And she's particularly got tips on how to deal with councils so that you can get your project goals achieved and satisfy the criteria of your local authority. So let's go. Well, Peter, it is so fantastic to have you here. I'm really excited to be talking with you because you are a town planner who really gets your knowledge and expertise and experience out there into the world. You've got a fantastic uh, method by the tips that you provide on, on your videos and on audio. I've been following you on Instagram and Facebook for some time now, and I always love seeing people in the industry being really generous in how they share information so that you know customers are more informed about what they're dealing with. So it's always fantastic to meet people like you. So thank you so much for joining us today. No, the pleasure is all mine. Honestly, it's nothing I've ever done before, so I'm really looking forward to seeing where this chat's going to go. Awesome. Now, perhaps you can start by telling us a little bit about your business, Brisbane Town Planning, you know, why you formed it, how how long it's been going for and what kind of projects you mainly work on. Okay, let's start with the easy stuff, how long it's been around. So this July, we're coming up to our fifth birthday which I think is really, really crazy because I love being able to say, hey, we're a new startup, we're fresh on the scene. But I think once we actually hit five years, you probably can't sit there and say I'm a startup anymore. (laughs) So it's going to be a bit of a sad milestone in a way. But, yeah, so five years, the type of jobs we do, we've done everything from like a small gatehouse, so I'm talking a small, small, tiny house extension, through to a state sort of motocross facility, so massive sports facility and everything in between. But we most enjoy, or what I've learned over the years, is that we get the most enjoyment out of working with the mum and dads on the houses and the house extensions, because that's where I feel we can actually have the greatest impact. So I can sit there and say, hey, I found a way to save you $1,000, and they think I'm the best thing since sliced bread. Whereas if you say that to a big corporate firm, they'll sit there and go, yeah, whatever, I don't care, it's not my money. So yes, I feel like I have more impact at that smaller sort of level, which is why I love working with those people. Um, And then, and you're mainly in the Brisbane City Council area. That's mainly where your projects are, which is still a huge area. I think it's the largest local government in Australia. So yeah, (laughs) it is. Yeah. So that's again, something we've learned over the years. So in the past, I did a whole heap of different councils, but we've really niched ourselves in the most recent years. Just go, like you suggest there, there is so many rules and regulations, ways they're interpreted, all that sort of stuff. So we like to focus on one little area and do it properly. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I, I mean, I, uh, I know that when I moved to Brisbane and I thought, awesome, um, one council, this is going to be really straightforward after having, you know, my education and working in Sydney for some time. And you get there and there's still so many different nuances and details wrapped up within that big city plan that it does still take a, a huge amount of unraveling to know exactly what's going to be specific Ooh, yes. to your area and your site. <laughs> so, yeah. I always joke, I wouldn't have a job if it was straightforward. So there is a reason <laughs> I have a job. <laughs> Now, you do manage to make what can be quite a dry topic quite that's quite uh, terminology-filled um, into something that's interesting and entertaining with the videos that you do and the audio tips that you put out. What motivated you to start doing this? Because I believe that you've been doing it now for a year. You've been putting the videos out there. So what? why did you start and, you know, what's your sort of your goal with these videos and the way you get information out into the world? It's crazy to think it's been a year. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, so I actually didn't start them for the obvious reasons. So I'm a massive fan of processes like systemization, automation. If you can automate something or systemize something to improve or free you up to do more customer service or customer centric things, I'm all for it. So back about a year ago, I was really struggling with the influx of emails. So we're going through kind of like a growth spurt and I thought I need to do something here because I'm not 
I'm overworked and I'm not giving clients the level of service that I'd actually like to be giving them. So I was shortcutting my advice, I was making mistakes, I was delaying my timeframes, all those sort of things. So I actually turned to video to try and overcome those issues. So I thought, hold on a sec, we're getting the same questions over and over again. Yes, they're related, totally different sites, each site's unique, but the same sort of themes coming up time and time again. So I went, okay, what if we create videos and then what if I link those videos into my emails? Maybe that would help me overcome these issues. Then once I created the videos, I went, well, we do have that Facebook page and we do have that YouTube channel. Why don't we just throw it up there and maybe a few more people would see it. And it's totally blown me away. I think we worked out over 134,000 views in the last year, which I always joke is ridiculous because we're not talking about cat videos. We're talking about videos that focus on legislation, so the ways council can crush your hopes and dreams for predominantly house applications exclusively within the Brisbane City Council local government area. Like it's the most boring and niche topic known to mankind, yet we've got some ridiculous traction going on. So yeah, I didn't start it for that reason, but I've seen the massive benefits that it can have in terms of educating people, building the awareness, managing expectations, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it, what's, I mean, I find some of them absolutely hilarious. There's some of them that are just so unexpected. You're sort of watching this video. I think there was one of you in a, you're dressed in like a, a, a great big, you've got a grandmother's sort of fro on and your glasses and the big stuffed up nighty and all this kind of thing. And I'm trying to concentrate on what you're actually saying, but laughing at what you're actually dressed in. <laughs> and that is still possibly my favourite work, like the best thing I've done. And it's the feedback that I've received from people watching the videos that has encouraged me to go down that path. Like if you'd said to me a year ago, hey, you're going to be dressing up in costumes and making a fool out of yourself on video, I would have gone, what are you talking about? Like it's a professional town planning firm. We can't do that. But, yes, I've received that feedback, little comments along the way to say, hey, we love how you do this, we do that. And it's gone, well, why not try this? Let's turn, push those boundaries a little bit further and see where we end up. And it's gotten to a ridiculous point now, but I'm just rolling with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a game of one-upmanship each time. It is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and everyone keeps encouraging me. They're like, oh, well, what are you going to do next? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I do need to come up with something crazier. <laughs> Look so it's a fine balance between wanting to educate people and taking it too far. But at the moment I haven't found that boundary, so. I will say, at one point I'll reach it and everyone go, okay, Peter, come on, you need to cut it back. You need to tone it down. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Now, I, you know, my first recommendation to the UA community whenever they're embarking on a renovation or building project is to find out what they're allowed to do. What are the local rules in their council for their area, for their site? Because what they can do on their property may vary from what their neighbour can do. I see lots of people get into problems having made assumptions because based on what a real estate agent might have told them oh. or uh, yeah, or what they've seen the person down the, around the block be able to do on their property. You obviously endorse this as well. Why do you believe it's so important that people start out on that on that on their journey with finding out what they're allowed to do first? Quite simply, every single day I see the outcomes of people not doing that. So I see the tears, the frustration, the aggression that comes with people who are emotionally attached. So they've wasted, let's say, two years worth of money, time and emotion on a design. They then get to me and I have to be the one that says, well, no, that property is not fit for purpose. Unfortunately, you can't do that type of house there or you can't do that extension there because you've got a waterway corridor, you've got protective vegetation, you've got character limitations, whatever it is. And they sit there and just go, but you don't understand how much time and effort and energy we've put into this. And I'm like, I do, unfortunately. <laughs> so, yes, because I see the heartache that comes with not doing that research in advance, that's why I'm big on trying to promote people and educate people and trying to get them doing those searches up front. Yeah, and I think it is that thing. You just see the headaches all the time when people don't do it. And I always say, you know, if you want to win a game, you're best off finding the rules of the game first because then you can figure out the most strategic way to win it and the, and the way to get to the end result in the fastest and simplest way possible. So... <laughs> <laughs> But it's amazing because you do, um, you do, you often unravel things that are to your benefit that actually it's like, okay, well, it's not going to impact the design that much for me to make this choice, but it means I'm not going to have to be uh, showing it to the neighbors. I can just run it through the fast track process or, you know, like it's just, a, it's that thing, isn't it? That information and education empowers you then to make better choices about what you're doing. So I, uh, yeah, so that, that first step of finding out what you're allowed to do. Now, can you perhaps go through some, I can, imagine, I can imagine you've seen a huge amount of mistakes and, and uh, challenges for homeowners who've come to you and said, but, you know, like you said, I've been working on this for two years and you're telling me now I can't get it through council. What are some of the, the trickier ones that you've seen in terms of the assumptions that a homeowner's made that's really got them unstuck in their project or a mistake that they've made about how they've gone about trying to get their council approval? 
yeah, okay, this is part of a daily instance for me. So I'd sit there and say demolition control, what used to be called demolition control precincts, they're now called traditional building character overlays. A lot of people turn up and go, oh, it's an old crappy house, like it's all falling down, it's got no character, it's been butchered, I'll just demolish it. You sit there and go, well, no, it's a traditional building character overlay and it's pre-1947. It's protected. It's sacred. Council's not going to let you unless it's to the extent where it's literally falling down and you, it's unsafe to walk in. It's not going to get approval to remove it. So don't even dream about it. And yet people are coming going, but I bought that property for that specific reason. I was going to bulldoze that house and build, and build my dream house. So that's probably the biggest one we hit. Second biggest one, same sort of thing. They buy in a character area and they go, but I want to do this beautiful modern architectural design. And you go, well, no, unfortunately, the character rules say you need to be in keeping with the streetscape. You need to be sympathetic to that streetscape. So you're suddenly talking branders on the front, pitched roof forms, lightweight materials, all of that sort of stuff. doesn't necessarily work in, working with the flat roof forms or the rendered material, all of that sort of stuff. So that's another big mistake we see people make. Small lots, so lots less than 450 square metres. You're limited in terms of your site cover, your building length, your maximum or minimum setbacks, all of that sort of stuff. So a lot of people go, oh, I'm going to whack a double carport up out the front or a garage out the front. And you go, yeah, no, council's not going to support that one. Sorry. <laughs> so that's probably another big mistake. Then zoning. A lot of people don't realise what can actually occur in their area. So they sit there and go, but I didn't realise units could pop up next door. I wouldn't have pumped all this money into this house renovation if that had been the case. And when you sit there and say, but did you look at what could lawfully be done in your area? No one knows to check that sort of stuff. And the final big one, I'd probably say flooding. So a lot of people, they sit there and go, but hold on a sec, I've never seen flooding on my property. Or Joe down the street has lived here since 1970 and he said he's never seen flooding on this property before. The thing is, council, it's unreasonable to think that we've seen the worst ever flood we will ever see in history. We will see a bigger flood than 74 or 2011. So council needs to account for those future risks. So they're not just accounting for what we've seen in terms of flooding, it's what we can see in the future. And as a result, they're often forcing you to build your house up or have undercross the water can flow through, water resilient materials, all of that sort of stuff. So probably the most common ones we see. Yeah, another one that I see particularly in the Brisbane City Council area is people not understanding that their height is measured from natural ground level as a definition, not as the site currently is, and that what the site currently is could be quite different from how council defines natural ground level. So obviously in Brisbane City Council, natural ground level is what the site was like when it was first subdivided and a surveyor is able to give that topography and measurement to you and that's where your height is measured from, whereas people just assume that their site is like that now. And I mean, you can understand council doing it because you can see those hilltops in areas like Belimba and those types of things where there's all those older areas where, you know, people could potentially just put a whole heap of dirt on their site to get themselves up higher why council says no it's got to be as per natural ground level but I like I remember a property we did in Auckenflower where that literally we were coming down to five centimeters of almost <laughs> getting unstuck on that and uh, and so yeah it's something to be really aware of and that's relevant I think for anybody in any council area you've got to understand the terminology don't you of how council defines particular things like what is what is a setback is it to the face of the wall is it to the face of the gutter? Is it to a face of an awning that you might have? Are you allowed to have encroachments into that setback area? You know, all of those types of things are really detailed nuances that happen in council areas um, that can really make a difference to what you can and can't do that you really need to understand at a detail level, don't you? Yeah. So even though we're talking, I'm talking exclusively about Brisbane City Council because it's what I live and breathe, the principles apply anywhere in the world. So you are always going to have zonings. They'll be called something different depending on where you are, but there's always going to be base rules about what council will and won't allow in an area in terms of development. You will always have overlays. Again, they'll be called something different, but they map out constraints. So things council wants to protect from development or vice versa. Um, you will always have versions of neighbourhood plans, so things that they want within little specific areas, little quirks to those localities. So the base principles are always going to be the same. And then, like I said, the interpretation of the rules, the setbacks, all that sort of stuff, it's going to apply to everyone. Now, you mentioned um, briefly about people not knowing what's going on in their area. I always recommend that as part of buying a property that you do some due diligence on the area and what it's zoned for and uh, what might be coming up around you. I know there's been lots of contention about this in particular areas of Brisbane, especially Sydney also has had a lot of issues with this because the, the Pacific Motorway, the Pacific Highway that goes through uh, into the Upper North Shore area, a lot of that got rezoned as apartment development, whereas, you know, there's a lot of houses that are now sitting up at back against, you know, sort of five and six storey apartment buildings. How do you, how have you helped homeowners sort of become aware of this in terms of their due diligence or um, help them prepare, I suppose, 
suppose, whether because um, it's something you sh- you know I really recommend that you get a town planner to help you look at. How have you helped homeowners in this regard who might be looking at a property? Is it something that's hard to do, and you know, is it something that they can sort of do very quickly so it doesn't slow down their need to buy? How does it work? Yeah, so this is an issue that I first came across probably about two years ago for me. So I was really struggling with a number of building designers or architects that were coming to me with fully formed designs and going, oh, can you just get approval for this? So we've just found out the certifiers told us you need approval for this. And I'm like going back to what we were talking about before. I'm like, well, no, you're in a character area, so you can't do that there. Or no, you've got protective vegetation. You can't do that there. And they're like, what the heck? If only we'd known this at the beginning. So I was starting to try and push those guys to come to me before, guys and girls, I should be correct there, push them to come to me before they actually start the design process. And unfortunately, they just kept saying to me, but we don't want to waste your time. We don't want to put that burden on you. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's such a quick process. It takes me five minutes to look at a site and that can save you so much energy, time, money, all that sort of stuff. But I just, I was really struggling trying to get over that hurdle. So I went, okay, how do I fix this situation? And what I decided to do was create like an automated program. So we've nicknamed this thing Charlie. Um, It's basically our automated site assessment tool. And we now offer that to all of our building design and architect clients. So we basically say every time someone calls you up and says, I've got a prospective job for you, I want you to come out and have a meeting with us. They then send the inquiry to Charlie. We would send back the information. So they turn up to that meeting ready to say to the mum and dad, okay, this is the parameters. This is what we need to work with from day one. So we've started that process. I do want to get to a point where we roll it out to the general public, but at the moment it's still in that sort of teething stage. So in the meantime, what I've decided to do is, as you said, our videos. So for the last year, we've been kind of targeting building designs and architects, so more of the industry professional. But I've realised that there is a lot of mum and dad clients, so the public out there that are actually seeing our content and are actually absorbing it and responding to it. And I didn't quite expect that they would do that. I thought it'd be too technical for them, too boring for them, all that sort of stuff. So because I've seen that positive take up there, I've gone, okay, this year, let's really ramp it up. Let's slightly simplify the language. Let's go back to those basic search principles and let's just try and re-educate Brisbane. And that is actually our goal for this year. We'll see how crazy it gets and how we actually go. But the goal is just to basically re-educate people, teach people how to do their own searches get them to know what to look for. Like, it's ridiculous. I'm looking for a house at the moment, a renovator. Every time I turn up to a site, I want to cry because I know I'm accounting for all of the town planning constraints and everyone else I'm up against has no idea. So here I'm going, okay, it's a pre-1911 house, which means you can't do any external demolition work to the original components. And here they are thinking, oh, yeah, I'll whack an extension out there. I'll do this, I'll do that. And Yeah, so I want to get the information and knowledge out there and I'm trying all these different methods at the moment. We'll see where it ends up. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's so true. What I'm seeing more and more, and I don't know if it's just because it's the space that you and I work in, in terms of trying to educate the homeowner and help them feel more empowered in the decisions that they're making. But I do see that this is something that homeowners are really taking, starting to step into and take control of. They're doing the research. They're seeking out information. They're trying to get the answers to questions that they have. And what I'm finding it then is enabling them to do is to find the right professionals to work with because they turn up with these questions and they're, they're looking for the answers they know they need to get in order to be able to trust them it's almost like the lack of trust in the industry and the dodgy operators that have been the bad apples in the you know their bad eggs in the crate have made it difficult for people to just trust the whole industry so they're now doing their own homework and they're turning up and finding the people that they can trust because there's brilliant operators out there and they've got the questions that they need to ask to sift and filter through the ones that are just telling them what they want to hear um, because they've they've informed themselves of actually no that's not right that's not you know how it goes so I think it's really I think it's a great approach and I would encourage anyone in any council area um, you know I often suggest a lot of this stuff is available online you can always just make a phone call to a local town planner in your area and ask them over the phone it's a great way to see what a town planner is like in terms of um, are they helpful and you know because they're then going to be the first person that you call when you do need the DA you know processed as well so and also just to make sure that um, they're finding out about the zoning around them so that uh, they can be sure that they're getting that knowing is a, is a block of units going to go up next to me if they're about to plan on doing this, turning it into this great, beautiful family home, but it's always going to be right for a developer. It's a very different strategy, isn't it? So, 100%. So another thing that we've seen a fair few councils do, and I know Brisbane City Council went through a big phase of this recently, um, was is how they go about changing policies and bringing in a new policy. And then obviously everybody having to become accustomed to that new policy and what it might mean for them. How do you, you know, why do you think it's important to understand this when you're navigating your project? What's on the horizon, you know, and how you deal with that as you're going about your project? 
So I think it's important to know that planning goes in roundabouts and loops. So it's constantly evolving thing and it's very politically driven. So we try one aspect or we try going down one path and then all of a sudden council and the government realise, oh, it's not quite working, let's change direction, let's go back around to what we were doing before. So planning's not fixed, it's very dynamic and the rules are constantly changing as a result. And we saw that midway through last year. So I think it was April last year, Brisbane City Council did a massive public consultation process. I think they've worked out the equivalent of one in five households actually participated, which blows my mind. But what came out of this overwhelmingly is that the public feel like council has taken or let the development industry run wild. So they've let the developers push things too far in terms of what they're asking for, getting permission for, all of that sort of stuff. And they wanted the council to basically rein it in. So the Lord Mayor got up and very publicly said, you've spoken, we've heard you, and we are going to start enforcing the acceptable outcomes, which essentially the ticker box requirements. And we're only going to consider performance outcomes in very rare sort of situations. So I often get people that will come to me and they'll say, but Joe down the street is currently building a three-storey house. And height's one of these big issues that's come out of this whole blueprint thing. So building a three-storey house down the street right now, why can't I suddenly do it? Well, that was under a previous planning scheme. Those approvals can be valid for four years. So they're technically still valid, still doing something that was approved four years ago. We've got totally new rules now. Council, even though common sense says precedence exists, from a legal perspective, precedence does not exist. It's not a proper term. So council goes, we don't care what's happened in the past. We don't want to replicate the planning mistakes of the past. So we are going to change things going forward. So you can't sit there and just rely on some old advice you've received or what's happened down the street previously because the rules are constantly evolving and changing. Yeah, and that I see that happen in any area and I see um, people who particularly who go straight to a builder and are working directly with a builder and their design team and not necessarily going through a designer process. Um, the builder ha- is working off rules that have always been sort of valid and they've not necessarily gone through the process of checking again because they might have been building properties in that area for some time. And so it's been really interesting to see well, it's, it's just heartbreaking because you can see them get to a point. I had one person who got in touch with me because the builder wasn't aware that the, the local um, zoning had actually, they were not allowing two-storey homes anymore. She was only allowed to do a single-storey home. Like it can be as significant as a change as that, can't it? So mm-hmm. it's, and it's such a rude shock when you've already invested all this time, effort and money and particularly even bought the site based on an assumption that you were going to be able to do something that you wanted to do. So I think in any area, it's, uh, it's definitely worth understanding that it's a moving feast. And you've got to stay definitely <laughs> now. Um, uh, house dating videos, these are fantastic yes. videos that you've been doing, and I'd love you to tell us a bit more about you know, explain to the person who hasn't seen them. I'm going to share a couple, I'll pop a, a couple into the blog on the website. Um, but just if you can share sort of what they are, why you do them, and what you're hoping to achieve by putting them out there. Okay, so I'd probably suggest like the videos just as a whole thing. It started out for one reason and it's evolved into something totally different. So I get a massive kick out of going into a house. It's like a puzzle or a detective game for me, walking around trying to work out what's been modified, what's original. So what the house originally looked like back in the day when it was first built. It's like I said, it's just like a game for me walking around going, okay, so I can see a split there. I can see a bit of wear and tear on those boards. Not quite sure what's going on. But then half an hour later, like, oh my goodness, that plus that plus that equals that. Oh my God that room's an addition it's totally new so I get a kick out of that process so I started recording those videos just because I enjoyed doing it and then I started to get the feedback from people and I noticed a lot of other people really enjoyed it they love being able to analyze their own houses or also turn up to potential inspections and go oh hold on a sec that's not original but more importantly, what I've noticed is it helps educate people, manage expectations before they start the design process. So I found often, even designers and architects, they would get to me with a fully formed design and I'd go, but you can't extend there because you're going to remove half the pre-47 house. And they go, oh, I didn't realise that was original. I'm like, what do you mean? How do you not know that's original? Like, can't you tell this, this, this? But I realised I've been very fortunate in terms of who I've been exposed to in my career in terms of knowledge, resource and all that sort of stuff. And I've picked up a lot of skills that I, because they were, I was around them every day, I thought they were normal. But I've come to realise they're not everyday skills that everyone has. And therefore, if I can get that information out there, it means people are making more informed decisions at the start of the design process. So they're going, okay, well, we could either go out to the left or to the right. Well, to the left means demolition, to the right means we're okay. Okay, we'll go that direction. So it's just giving them the information, arming them with the information up front so that they can choose which path they way they go down so they're not facing those no answers or refusals from council down the end of the track. And it is really fantastic. I know that we had a property 
uh, in Spring Hill that was cited as pre-19. Well, the council wasn't sure if it was pre-1911 and it was at the point where they were just changing the rules and they were bringing in the pre-1911 um, requirement in addition to the pre-1947. And so for, for people who aren't aware, what I'd learned, and I'm not sure if this is actually correct, but it's what I've always been told, is that the reason that the 1947 date is selected is because it was the first time an aerial photograph was taken in Brisbane and so they have a record of what was there and what was not there. And so for in terms of being able to demonstrate what is, I suppose, the heritage of Brisbane, they've got physical evidence and so that was always a date. Um, is that is that is that understanding correct that it is the first date of the – yeah? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So they now do have access to more aerial photos but back at that point that was all the aerial photos that they did actually have and good quality ones. Yeah, mm. and it's hilarious when because you can access those online. I know you've got information about how to do them. I've got a blog on my website about how to find out if your house is pre nineteen forty seven or not. And it's it's uh, you can see the aerial photographs. And I I remember actually one client coming to me and saying it's not pre nineteen forty seven, but I reckon it's only just because I can see the bits of timber lying on my side <laughs> ready for construction in the photograph. <laughs> so they missed it by just that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then they brought in the pre-1911 and I remember when we were they were obviously still gathering evidence what I found generally and some councils are like this some councils aren't Brisbane City Council's pretty good at being quite proactive at working with community to pull information together and one thing I saw particularly post the 2011 flood we were living in Brisbane when the floods went through and um and I saw Brisbane City Council just do all of that work to map the flooding and to identify each site whereas in a lot of other council areas I've had clients in Sydney for example where flooding has been suspected but it's been up to the homeowner to demonstrate with a hydraulic engineer's report to the tune of $8,000 whether that flooding is an issue and almost councils outsourcing their record keeping to the homeowner who wants to do the renovation rather than what Brisbane City Council did which invested a huge amount of resources and money in mapping all of that flooding and getting that information in so and I know that with the pre-1911 it's been similar they've obviously had a, a register but when they've had houses like this one that we were trying to get a, a application done on that they suspected might be pre-1911 the homeowner had to do a bit of work to um to to discover whether or not it was and they went to the state library and found out that you know who the original owner was they quite enjoyed that process yeah but it was interesting we you know you could go in underneath the house and you could see that we were a little bit uh concerned because we could see where the original house was but then we could see where an extension had been but it was a very old extension so you weren't sure whether it sat between the 1911 and the 1947 yep. <laughs> stage but it is the houses do tell a story it's gorgeous oh. isn't it it's beautiful just to walk in, like, it's good and bad. I now walk into some houses and initially I'm like, oh, it's so beautiful. It's a cute old Queenslander. And by the time I walk out, I go, oh, it's a butchered mess. Like, it's horrible. <laughs> so it's a bit of a curse having some of this knowledge sometimes. But, yeah, it's, I love the game of just walking in and picking up on those little details and just having it all come together and just, oh, it, it screams at you by the end. And there's one video we did in particular, which was we're invited to review a state heritage listed house. And that was exactly the same. You walk in going, okay, I'm noticing these little things, but it's not making sense. And all of a sudden by the end you just go, whoa, it was four townhouses. We had stairs in the middle here. We had kitchen downstairs. We had it just all comes together. It's so much fun. That's brilliant. Well, I'll share some of those videos on the blog because I think people will really love to see them and start implementing that sort of investigation in their own searches. And it's, you know, it's why I encourage people when they're renovating and extending an old house to make sure that they're not just mimicking everything that the old house has and trying to blend it in as much as possible. But they do let their their addition to that house tell their story about what they've done to change that property because it's uh, it's usually what's happened over the life of the property anyway. So, yeah. And that's something we're noticing with council at the moment. There's a big push not to be so matchy-matchy because they're realising now we are actually having a lot of trouble trying to date these houses because sometimes the extension work is really good quality. So you can't work out what's original and what's not because it's been meshed so well together. So perfect example is last week we have a situation where they've got a sunroom and they want to basically remove the windows and wall in the side. And council turned around and said, well, could you possibly use FC sheeting or could you use something to create differentiation between the new and the old so that if a historian turns up 50 years now from now or 100 years from now, it is clear that that used to be a window and it used to have that open sort of sunroom feel. 
So, yeah. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Oh, I love that. I actually, because I know in Melbourne there's um, there's a few councils there where they insist that any addition you make has to be contemporary to old houses. It has to, and there's a lot of pushback against that because people obviously buy these old houses because they like that aesthetic and they like that character. And so the extension isn't something that they necessarily want to make look entirely different. But council's very clear on the fact that, no, this has to look like new work. It has to look like something of its time um, and, and it has to be about an architectural design exploration of what is current you know current design methodology all about so I, I think I do see that um, it, there's a great opportunity people will often think oh I don't want it to look like just a complete appendage to the house I think you can still do things that are very complementary and work um, sympathetically with the existing house but don't necessarily completely copy it so that they do as you say you know tell a new story and um, and that there's an opportunity for somebody to come back later and go oh that was they can do their own house dating and say that was an addition later on so yeah, I think I mentioned before planning goes in roundabouts. It's the same sort of thing with this. We went to an extreme where everyone was trying to do something totally different, really contrasting to the old houses. And what council realised and the state government with the heritage listed buildings realised is that it was competing with the original form. So the original cute house, if it was heritage listed, was being overpowered by these modern sort of extensions. So we have started to tone it down a bit, but we are still trying to go down that path of saying, no, let's differentiate the old from the new. Yeah. Brilliant. Peter, I'm going to put um, resources for you in uh, on the blog and in the show notes because um, I hope everyone, regardless of, don't just think that this is all all about, like anything that Peter's talking about with Brisbane City Council, there will be a version of it in your local planning authority wherever you're located in the world and you'll have some really good knowledge around the terminology and the tools to start asking the right questions so that you can dig below the surface and really find out. So I can't thank you enough for your time and your generosity and the generosity that you have in just continuing to do the work that you do in putting it out into the world. So thank you very much, Peter. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Now, I hope you enjoyed that and found it helpful. As I said, wherever you're located, it's worthwhile checking on how some of these ideas will apply to your local council or local planning authority. Town planning is one of those things that's global and it just simply has different applications locally. Head to the show notes or this blog on Undercover Architects website and I've got links there on how you can find Caroline and Peter and get in touch with them. Be sure to reach out and thank them if you enjoyed their interview. They were super generous with their advice and knowledge and the way that they answered their questions here and I know that my guests always love hearing feedback about how their knowledge has helped you. Now, as you can imagine, there was a lot I had to leave out of these interviews. And so these are both edited versions of my full conversations with Caroline and Peter. And you can find their full interviews featured inside my online course for Australian homeowners, how to get it right in your reno or new home as a special bonus for members. Now, if you're thinking about renovating or building your family home, you're already researching and planning, or you're even in the design stages, you're going to want to check out the online courses I have called How to Get It Right in Your Reno or New Home and the Welcome Home course. So How to Get It Right is tailored for Australian homeowners. And in the Welcome Home course, I team up with award-winning American architect, Eric Reinholdt, to create a specific course for American homeowners. Both courses They take you through my step-by-step system from the very start to the very finish of your renovation or building project. And I'll explain a bit more about that in a minute. Look, as Undercover Architect has grown as an online business, I really love being able to reach and connect with homeowners from all corners of the globe. I've got almost 25 years industry experience in design, building and renovating in Australia. And what I've found is that this step-by-step system of mine for any renovation or new building project, the one that I've been using in client projects and in my own projects for all of that time, when I actually teach this system to you, you like... What I see time and time again is how it can help you as a homeowner save time, money and stress in your project. And so that's what these courses do. When you have the steps to follow, the map for your journey ahead, you can then move confidently towards that future home that you're dreaming of and not waste any time or money. When you know that that step-by-step system has been created over decades of experience in hundreds of hundreds of family homes like yours, you can save so much stress in your project and create a home that works and feels great. And when you have the steps, as well as the professional know-how, design knowledge, tools, resources, and guides, you can seriously shortcut your journey. You can enjoy your experience and you can avoid the heartache and drama so many endure. If you're keen to make your journey simpler, be confident in the home that you're creating, 
is actually achievable and know the steps to get you there, these online courses are the way. In them, I've literally packaged up what is in my head and my heart from almost 25 years experience to show you the way to your future family home. Do you want to learn more about the courses? Well, if you're an Aussie, if you're an Australian homeowner, head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right. And if you're an American homeowner, head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash welcome home and you'll be able to find out all the information about each of those courses there and I've got a special bonus for the gorgeous UA community podcast listeners this is the first time I've ever done this actually just use the code podcast all right the word podcast you have to type it in to the coupon code when you go through and buy you'll immediately access $50 off okay so you'll get a $50 saving when you use the coupon code podcast so those links again are Australians undercoverarchitect.com forward slash get it right and Americans undercoverarchitect.com forward slash welcome home. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.